0: Our daily Deep Dive, and I'm so pleased to welcome into the space retired Arkansas judge. He is an author. His latest book is called Parables, Politics, and Prophetic Faith. He spent 12 years as a judge of the Sixth Judicial Court Circuit of Arkansas, Fifth Division, and 13 years as a judge on the Arkansas Court of Appeals. He's also uh, an outspoken uh, social critic in his own right. Judge Wendell Griffin, welcome.
1: Sister Dominic Prima, thank you for letting me be part of your morning. How are you?
0: I'm blessed. Thank you for being part of our morning. It's certainly an honor.
1: It's good to be in the LA. Ears this morning, and thank you for the work you are doing, carrying on the tradition of your wonderful family. And you're doing it in a wonderful way. So I'm glad to be part of what you're doing.
0: Much appreciation. Before we get into voting rights, which is such a an urgent matter right now in our country, I want to ask you because we have an election coming up here in LA. How would you judge a judge if you're me? and you're trying to decide who to vote for, for the bench, what criteria would you put in place?
1: I look, uh, and thank you for asking the question because most folks don't realize that judges are elected in almost, in more than half of the states in the country. Uh, And I look, as I I ran as a judge for, uh, as you mentioned, for 25 years, uh, at number one, What has been that person's record concerning fairness for the people who live with their backs against the wall? Everybody wants to talk about how things work for the folks at the top of the social chain. But justice really is defined by how we treat those people who have no power to protect themselves and who, if not protected by the courts, will be run over by the powerful. And so uh, I look at the record of that person or those persons with regard to how they have treated people who are impoverished, are unhoused. How have they treated women and girls? How have they treated the elderly? How have they treated people who have illnesses, mental, physical, or otherwise? How have they treated people who are the the victims of our criminal punishment system. I don't call it a criminal justice system because it's not about justice. It's about punishment. And so how have they treated people who are victims of the criminal punishment system? By that, I mean people who are charged, arrested, beaten, brutalized, incarcerated, uh, who are not only folks who are the people who are the victims of criminal conduct, but also the victims of criminal policing. Because a lot of what we have called policing is itself criminal. And so uh, I look at those factors and I ask myself "Hmm, if I have no power, if I have little money, if I have no ability to to leverage my social position to get an advantage, will this person, hear me the same way he or she will listen to the petitions for the cases involving the powerful. Did I answer your question?
0: Absolutely. I guess then it's up to us to be able to discern that or find that information about any given judge.
1: Yes, sister. And that's part of the challenge because as you very well know, the legal profession and the judiciary does a very good job of keeping us from knowing who the people are that are running for judges. They tell them they can't talk about them, their backgrounds, which is a lot. Uh, when I was running for elections as a judge in Arkansas, whether it's statewide or in a district or a circuit area, I used to tell people, excuse me, judges are the people on our political ballots who A are not term limited, B have the longest terms of anybody in office, and C are the only ones who have the power to jail you, take your money, or sentence you to death if the if the jury gives them that power. And so you have a right and a need to know more about that person than the orthodoxy allows. We need to be able to vet the folks who are running for judges, just as we would vet folks who are taking care of our children.
0: Yeah, it's a great point. You've been pretty outspoken throughout your career. You're a critic of the war in Iraq. <laughs> a couple things you've already said on this show, um, casting a critical eye on the injustices within our legal system. How did that work for you as a sitting judge? Well, folks didn't
1: like it, uh, but I like to remind people that if you run for or if you're in a judicial position and you're working on popularity, you chose the wrong career path. Uh, <laughs> the, you know the, quite you know referees and judges should not be playing to the bleachers, mm. They should, be, they should be calling the plays. And the fact of the matter is, when judges are concerned more about their popularity than the principles of truth and fairness and justice, then injustice happens, and it happens dressed up in a black robe.
0: Wow. Should judges be appointed rather than elected?
1: I think that is a question for the individual voters. I prefer on state positions elected judges because it gives the individual voters a chance to get to know the people who, as I've mentioned, are going to have the most power to affect their lives, their liberty, and their property. The problem is that that imposes, as you mentioned, an obligation on the part of voters to be discerning. And unfortunately, uh, judicial elections, like other elections, are now becoming more monetized.
0: Yeah.
1: monetized. Uh, the notion of stealth money in these elections is very real. Big bucks. I mean, fascism has decided that if we cannot control justice at the ballot box. We'll we'll control it at the courthouse. Uh, And what has been happening in the various states, whether it's elected judges or appointed judges at state levels, there has been a move to basically try to put folks on the bench who are going to keep the courthouse closed to folks who are the least of these keep the laws to protect the powerful and oppress the unpowered the unpowerful the unprivileged and basically do the bidding uh, of the privileged and the entrenched interests it therefore is a very big challenge for us to get judges who come from, for instance, uh, a public defender background. Justice Ketanji Brown uh, Jackson is the, is the first judge in the history of the US Supreme Court who has been a public defender. Now think about that, sister. Yeah. Think about that. Think about all of the number of people who have to have public defenders to handle their cases and all the public defenders who are doing work, and we can't get one but one in the history of Supreme Court, and I'm so glad she's there, but she also is one voice of, out of nine, and the other eight do not have her background or her sensitivity to the realities of our criminal punishment system. And so it's, it's, it's going to be a real challenge for us to make sure that the right people are put forth to be judges and the right people get in those seats.
0: Yeah. Well said. I know we weren't going to talk about this, but since you brought up the Supreme court, I have to ask this question. Should they be term limited? Should the court be expanded?
1: I would have Move to expand the Supreme Court of the United States where I president of the United States some time ago simply because uh, the Supreme Court of the United States needs to have more judges given the volume of work that it does. Okay. Uh, secondly, uh, I mean, just think about it. Uh, the volume of litigation in the country is not the same as it was 75 years ago, but the right. court is the same size. And so uh, it's like saying, hey, you're going to get the same size of engine to do more work. That's just, not, that's just not realistic. And so apart from the politics of expanding the court, just the realities of getting the work done, getting more cases reviewed, getting more cases reviewed and decided faster, is possible if you have more justice. Secondly, uh, I have never been a favor of term limits for any office. I say that, you know, if you're going to have term limits for uh, for elected officials, that's called an election. But we've Mm. never never elected Supreme Court justices in the history of the the court. So if you're going to have term limits for the Supreme Court of the United States, you're going to fundamentally change the way the Supreme Court is supposed to operate, which is supposed to be apolitical. Now, we know in the last 25, well, in the last, uh, let's see, since 1980, the Supreme Court has been anything but political. Ronald Reagan ran for office in 1980 intending to suppress voting rights, to suppress civil rights, to suppress the rights for, uh, of women. And the so-called moral majority, which, I, which are neither moral nor majority, uh, push that kind of stuff. The fascists, they call them religious nationalists or, or Christian conservatives. They're not Christian nor conservative. And, but they, they push this. And so what we now see on the U.S. Supreme Court and across the federal bench is a very right-wing, neo-fascist kind of backlash Against the civil rights aims and the civil rights gains since Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, and the voting rights cases that we're now having to deal with uh, are a direct result of that. People forget seem to forget that the 14th Amendment allowed African men to become citizens, not not women, because women didn't get the right to vote until the 19th Amendment came in. Uh, They were citizens, but the 15th Amendment gave African men the right to vote in 1870. For the next 95 years, the country did everything it could to suppress the voting of black men by all kinds of measures. Gerrymandering is one of the ones, but we forget white primaries. I'm from the South, born in the South, raised in the South, educated in the South, went to law school in the South lived in the South most of my life, except for the time I spent in the military and traveling around the country. And so I know the history in every one of the Southern states. At the end of the Civil War, you had hundreds of thousands of liberated Africans who, had they been voting, could have changed the face of this democracy. And so the same people who insisted on giving Africans a three-fifths sense of personhood from the beginning of this nation in 1787 agreed with the idea of a Supreme Court that in beginning in 1870 began to then to take a dim view towards voting rights and in Every way possible between 1870 and, between 1870 and and 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was passed, we who are Africans, Americans, basically saw the 15th Amendment, which gave us the right to vote, turn into a nullity. You had the right to vote, but you, I mean, it was a constitutional right, but it wasn't enforced. Because the Supreme Court wasn't enforcing it. And so the Voting Rights Act had to be evident. And we know the history.
0: We'll talk more about that. We're talking with Judge Wendell Griffin, and we'll continue the conversation when we come forward. That was a great segue. Uh, We have a recent decision about the Voting Rights Act that could really be another brick in in dismantling our rights in this country. We'll look at that when we come forward. Only on KBLA Talk 1580.
1: The station you turn to when you've had it up to here with cultural incompetence. KBLA Talk 1580.
0: We are talking this morning with Judge Wendell Griffin. He's retired from the bench after 25 years as a judge. Also an author, parables, politics, and prophetic faith, his latest book, and a pastor as well. A lot of jobs. But also... Specialist on voting rights, as you probably figured out listening to the conversation so far, the um, a federal appeals court has basically weakened the Voting Rights Act with a ruling that would bar private citizens and civil rights group from filing lawsuits under a central provision of that civil rights law. This is the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. They found that only the federal government could bring legal challenges under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. For those of us who are not judges or lawyers, that may sound like a lot of jargon, but it seems to me and from what I'm understanding that this will almost nullify uh, the Voting Rights Act.
1: Sister DePrimer, you have nailed it. You have nailed it. Uh, let me give a little context. As you know, the 1965 Voting Rights Act fundamentally opened the doors for black people who had been historically uh, kept from the polls to get to the polls. And we saw what happened. Uh, black folks began voting after the Voting Rights Act was passed and we began electing black elected officials around the country in the South where I'm from, it began to change uh, the face of politics in some states, not nearly as much as it should have. For instance, my state still has not elected a black elected official statewide in the history of the state.
0: Wow. But
1: more, more people were elected from color of color and the Voting Rights Act was because of that. Then, uh, the, as always, the retrenchment began. In 2013, the Supreme Court of the United States issued a decision uh, called Shelby County of Alabama versus Holder. Eric Holder was the attorney general. Uh, and the Justice Department sued Alabama because they were doing voting rights violations. But the Supreme Court de- declared section four of the Voting Rights Act, which Required southern states or states that had a history of voting rights infractions to pre-clear. To basically, before they did any change in in electing elections, they had to pre-clear those changes because they had a history of voting rights violations. The Supreme Court in Shelby County versus Holder in 2013 struck down the pre-clearance requirement. So all of, boom, just like that, uh, uh, within weeks after Shelby County versus Holder. We started having voter ID requirements, uh, all kinds of additional requirements, photo ID requirements for voting. Now, the most recent change or most recent attack comes from, as you mentioned, the United States Court of Appeal for the Eighth Circuit. Now, this is the Court of Appeals in the federal circuit, the federal judiciary that deals with several states in the middle of the country, starting with North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Nebraska, Missouri, Arkansas. Uh, These states were covered by the Eighth Circuit. Well, Arkansas, as you know, like every other state, had a census in 2020. Every 10 years, we have a census. So year after the census, every state legislature has to redistrict, has to redraw their legislative district lines. In 2021, the Arkansas legislature redrew their lines, and in doing so, they drew the lines to reduce the number of voting, uh, of electoral legislative districts that would produce, or would likely produce, black legislators by two ways one is called packing basically by congregating black voters in a in a one district where you had black voters there may have been two or more districts in large proportions you shrink the black vote by putting them all in one district so you reduce the ability of black voters to elect candidates of their choice in both those districts the other one is called it's called crack, uh, cracking, where you have black voters uh, in a district segregated. You spread them out, so you basically scatter them, put them in various districts that have larger percentages of non black voters, so that the voting power of both the black voters in the larger districts or in the districts that's very compacted is diluted. The provision that covers that issue in the Voting Rights Act is called Section 2, which is in the Voting Rights Act to effect, to govern the discriminatory effects of voting rights changes. For instance, what happened was in the 2021 change, the voters of Arkansas, the black voting population of Arkansas, was about 16%. But The the effect of the 2021 voting rights change, the electoral changes, was going to essentially reduce the power of black voters to about 11%. That was challenged by the NAACP, the National Association for Advancement of Colored People, and another private group, the Arkansas Public Policy Panel. And they had the data. But a federal judge, a Trump-era federal judge in Little Rock, Arkansas, ruled that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act could only be prosecuted by the Attorney General of the United States, by the U.S. Justice Department. Even though Section 2 had been used and had been upheld by federal courts for decades, this federal judge in January of this year said no. Section two is not apply is cannot be used unless the attorney general brings a lawsuit. And he gave the attorney general of the United States five days to join the lawsuit. The Justice Department can't decide whether to file a lawsuit in five days, and when they didn't file a lawsuit in five days, he dismissed the voting rights case. Mm. The case goes to the U.S. Court of Appeals Faith Circuit. In Judge
0: same- J- Judge Wendell Griffin, hold that thought. We are going to continue this very very clear explanation. After news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 1580.
1: She's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More First Things First with Dominique De Prima when we come forward. Broadcasting live from Lamar Park, USA. Welcome back to your home for unapologetically progressive radio, KBLA Talk 1580.
0: We're talking with judge, pastor, and author Wendell Griffin, and he was breaking down The Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the major erosion of it that we've seen since 2013, Shelby versus Holder, uh, with the dismantling of Section 4, which required states with a history of voter suppression to get approval in advance of making these changes that make it harder for black people and poor people to vote, We see the impact of that. We've seen it in the 2020 election. And even before that, with the reduction of voting places, longer and longer lines, all kinds of weird restrictions, um, voter ID, as he mentioned. Then he went on to talk about the recent Eighth Circuit court decision regarding Section 2, which, if I'm understanding correctly, means that Only the Attorney General, only the United States can bring a case uh, regarding the maps, gerrymandering, the um, distribution of our votes. And that would be a huge change because agencies like MALDEF or the NAACP would no longer be allowed to advocate for voting rights with the courts. So take it away. I'm sorry, uh, (laughs) Judge Griffin, I had to go uh, into news, traffic, and sports, but you were just getting a little deeper into what this means for Section 2.
1: The Supreme Court of the United States has never taken the position that only the Attorney General of the United States can bring a voting rights violation case under section two. Now, let me be clear. Section two was added, was amended to the Voting Rights Act in 1981 to make it easier to bring a voting rights case by allowing you to prove a voting rights violation by what's called discriminatory effect, the impact voting rights changes, instead of having to prove that a change in election practices was intentional to discriminate against protected people, Black folks, Latinos, protected classes. In 1981, Congress amended Section 2 to allow a discriminatory effects test. And from 1981 until now, the section 2 has been used by individuals and by advocacy groups more and more specifically advocacy groups because these kind of cases are very very labor intensive to challenge voting rights violations and especially after the supreme court decided the shelby county versus holder decision in 2013 section 2 has been the way that folks have been trying to protect voting rights against violations. So now this latest decision by the Eighth Circuit, by three judges of the Eighth Circuit, that Section 2 cannot be used by the NAACP of our other advocacy groups or by private individuals, but only by the Attorney General of the United States, is a real setback to enforcing the protections against voting rights violations that are in section two of the Voting Rights Act. If you knock down section two of the Voting Rights Act and only allow the Attorney General of the United States to bring it, think about the fact that we are only three years away from the time when there was an Attorney General of the United States called William Barr, Bill Barr, and his predecessor mm-hmm. was Jefferson Sessions. Jeff Sessions had been an opponent. Of voting rights. Donald Trump had been appointed voting rights. Please understand that these kind of changes, both Shelby County versus uh, Holder in two thousand thirteen and the case in Arkansas, the Arkansas NWCP versus uh, versus the Arkansas Board of Apportionment, Sir Huckabee Thanders is the governor we know who she is because she was Donald Trump's spokesperson uh, during the early part of his campaign. Tim Griffin is the attorney general. He was a boat pager for Karl Rove. Wow! Okay, <laughs> and he's attorney general. And the third member of the board of apportionment is the secretary of state, John Thurston. All three are Republicans. All three are pro-Trump. And so they approved this 2021 voting rights uh, legislative redistricting math that basically shrank the ability of black voters to elect candidates of their choice. The disparity shows that Arkansas created some hyper-connected black districts through packing and then cracked the remaining black voters to give them minimal impact. And so the NAACP and the Arkansas Public Policy Panel sought an injunction to prevent the Board of Apportionment from using the new BAP because of its discriminatory impacts. Now this decision by the Eighth Circuit last week prevents that. The question is whether or not the full Eighth Circuit, the entire eleven-member Eighth Circuit, will reverse that we really are at a situation now where the future of the Voting Rights Act in Arkansas, in Missouri, Nebraska, Iowa, Minnesota, North Dakota, and and South Dakota, seven states in the middle of the country is in jeopardy. Please understand, Missouri you have black voters concentrated in St. Louis on the east and Kansas City on the west. Arkansas, you have black voters concentrated in the central part of the state and the delta, the southeast part of the state. Nebraska, you got black voters concentrated in Omaha. If you can crack and pack black voters to dilute their voting strength and only the attorney general can challenge that, then cracking and packing will happen. And what we will see is the legislative districts, the voting rights districts, the the electoral districts will be filled by people, not by folks that the voters elect, but by politicians who have picked their voters. Instead of the the voters picking the politicians, the politicians will pick the voters. That's not democracy. That's hypocrisy. That's white supremacy.
0: And for those who say your vote doesn't matter, that will become the truth if our votes are so diluted by these hand-picked voting districts that we have no clout.
1: Exactly. Let me give you a classic example. In, I live in Little Rock, Arkansas, in the central part of the state. Little Rock is in Pulaski County. Little Rock's congressional district, our federal congressional district in Felicia County, after the 2021 census and redistricting was split into three congressional districts. So depending on where you live Mm. in one county, you may be represented by different people in Congress. Now, how they did that was by taking... 25,000 white voters and putting them in the voting district and therefore diluting the effect of those black voters. This is what happens. Now, to your point, this is aimed at diluting the power of black privileged voters. It has the effect of doing that. And section two says you cannot have a discriminatory effect even if you didn't intentionally aim at diluting it. If the effect was diluted, you violated the Voting Rights Act. Hmm.
0: So, um, we're talking right now with Judge Wendell Griffin, and of course, this... Case will might end up in the Supreme Court. Let me get your thoughts on that. Your thoughts on what we as voters, as activists, and change makers should know and do about this when we come forward. Exclusively on KBLA Talk fifteen
1: eighty. More of first things first with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. Welcome. This is KBLA Talk fifteen eighty where hate meets a scholarly match.
0: Hey. hey, hey. Lest we think this is only happening in Arkansas, or perhaps it is something esoteric that will be taken up by the courts, consider this, right-wing appeals court to consider Texas MAP and fresh threat to Voting Rights Act. 18 hours ago uh, in The Guardian, Georgia lawmakers hold special session to redraw voting districts, five hours ago. Um, The Wisconsin Supreme Court appears poised to strike down legislative maps and end Republican dominance. Just one week ago, New Mexico Supreme Court upholds Democratic drawn maps. Ohio Supreme Court dismisses redistricting lawsuits. Tennessee Senate maps ruled unconstitutional. Louisiana state legislative map goes to trial. Judge Wendell Griffin, take it away.
1: You have called the roll, Sister DiPrima, because this is where the fight is being waged now. The reality is that in states across this country, the, the right to vote is being challenged by keeping people from having the capacity to elect candidates of their choice by these kind of packing and cracking schemes that result in very, very skewed voting maps. And you mentioned the Galveston, Texas case that's going to go to the Fifth Circuit. Uh, you mentioned the Louisiana case. These cases are coming up. and. They're being—they're coming up on purpose for a, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I—I uh, I think your listeners need to know that these cases are coming up out of a history where private groups have been able to bring voting rights ca- acts cases. Private individuals have been able to bring voting rights cases. For decades under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act or Section 10 of the Voting Rights Act, and even though those provisions of the Voting Rights Act do not specifically state that you have a private right of action, the Supreme Court has said that private right of action is implied because those changes to the Voting Rights Act under Section 5 and Section 10, like Section 2, were made to enforce the 15th Amendment. Which gives the right to vote. What we are seeing is that the cases that are the maps that came up in 2021 that have been drawn by Republican state legislatures are being drawn with an aim, just like on the abortion cases, of getting the issue of voting rights to the US Supreme Court, where drum roll, Justice Clarence Thomas leads a majority of justices in wanting to roll back voting rights cases. The cases that were cited by the 8th Circuit last week in St. Louis to roll back Section 2 are cases that were decided by, in opinions, by Justice Clarence Thomas. The majority judge who wrote the opinion, clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas.
0: So that doesn't bode well for Section Two. Should this case go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court?
1: It doesn't, and I think I need to say this: uh, people foul you hard only because you can play. If you can't play, they don't foul you because they don't want to give you a free shot, uh, and they don't—they don't—they don't, they believe you're going to miss your shot. The reason why these efforts are being made is because in 2008 and in 2000, black voters voted overwhelmingly in favor of. Al Gore, and if the black voters in Miami-Dade county's votes had been counted, you remember the Supreme Court stopped the vote count, Al Gore would have been president of the United States, not George W. Bush. If black voters had not turned out in large numbers in 2008, Barack Obama would not have become the Democratic nominee, let alone been elected. He was reelected in 2012. Congress, however, changed, and the Republican justices on the Supreme Court in 2013 knocked out Section 4 of the Human Rights Act, preclearance, and then we started having voter photo ID requirements, cutting back on who gets the chance to vote. And now we've got this. These voting rights challenges in 2021 occurring after Donald Trump lost black and Latino and poor people's votes in 2020. So you cannot disconnect the dots. You've got to see how this works. Fascism is at work here. This is a deliberate effort to suppress the votes of people who would make this democracy live and keep it as a, let me just say it, not a democracy, but a hypocrisy.
0: When we continue... Well, you got, the, we'll well, get, you
1: got a chance to oh, vote, but your vote doesn't count.
0: Indeed. Talking with Judge Wendell Griffin, when we come forward, we'll get his marching orders, some final thoughts on KBLA talk 1580
1: say the quiet part out loud, out loud. KBLA talk 1580 conversation continues right now, right now. Right now. with Dominique DePrima on first things first,
0: first. first. Uh, very illuminating conversation with judge Wendell Griffin before uh, you give us your final thought your marching orders tell us how to track you and where to get the book
1: thank you very much uh, The book I wrote with my good friend Alan Buzak from South Africa is titled Parables, Politics, and Prophetic Faith. Uh, you can find it online at your, at at Amazon or at Barnes and Noble's or, and I am encouraging folks to go to your independent black owned bookstore, booksellers because that money stays in our neighborhoods and moves around you know, among our people. Uh, and so find a bookseller. You can find it online, of course, but find a local bookseller if you can because it is available both online and in independent bookstores. If your bookstore doesn't have it, tell them you want them to stop Parables, Politics, and Prophetic Faith by Alan Buzak and Wendell Griffin. It's just $21. Hey, you can't... You can't pay your cable bill. You can't pay your phone, <laughs> t- cell, phone cell phone bill with uh, that much kind of money. So you can get the book. Uh, we, it, hey, there's chapters, and I wrote two chapters about reparations. All right? I wrote a chapter in there about Haiti. Wrote a chapter in there about the issue of the insurrection. Alan Buzak wrote a chapter about, hey, let's look at South Africa uh, 30 years after Mandela gets out. A prison and where is South Africa so we're trying to bring the issues about what's going on in the world as Marvin Gaye said so well what's going on but we're tying it to passages of scripture and saying hey let's read these passages in a way that illuminates what's going on with our reality right now so that's how you can get the book uh, and you can find me at uh, I'm on Twitter at Judge Griff on on on, uh, on at at X now, uh, or you can find my maybe I, my I have a blog, Fierce Prophetic Hope, because I've wrote another book titled a Fierce Urge, Prophetic Hope. You can also catch me on Facebook, Judge Wendell Griffin on Facebook, um, and remember spell Griffin with an E-N in, cause uh, my dad wanted it that way, G R I F F E N. He didn't want his name to be like a shoe polish name. It was Griffin shoe polish, so he changed it when he got out of the Army. The Griffin E.N. would be right.
0: Well, Judge Griffin, we have to leave it there because it is time for me to pass the microphone to Tavis Smiley. I hope you'll grace us with your presence once again soon. And thank you so much for being with us.
1: Sister Framer, thanks for letting me be on. Hey, keep it alive. Keep pushing it.
0: Absolutely. Tavis Smiley is up next. Until tomorrow, one last.